It's something for nothing. The Rush Fan Cast. Jerry and Steve with you. Jerry, when we started this podcast, we had a list of guests that we hope to one day speak to, right? That's right. It was all pie in the sky. Pie in the sky. And we've eaten a lot of that pie. <laughs> we've eaten a lot of that pie. That is true. There are a couple of slices. There are a few slices left. But for the most part, the pie is gone. Pretty much. But one slice of that pie is going to be on our podcast today. That's right. I'm sure he'd be thrilled to be compared to a slice of pie. That depends what the pie is, right? <laughs> Pie's great. <laughs> Pecan pie. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. You can find us on Twitter. We are at RushFanCast. Instagram, you can find us at TheRushCast. Email Jerry. Let him know your favorite pie at TheRushCast <laughs> at gmail.com. The base intro and outro, that's Lex. Subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast app. And Jar, I hope you have a great email to get us started here. I do. This is about our episode where we talked about the third disc of different stages, which is the Hammersmith Odeon concert. That was a good one. That was a good one. And we talked about the extra songs that were on the 40th anniversary release. So here it goes. It's from Neil. What's up, Neil? He says, listening to your latest episode brought back such wonderful memories for me. As whilst I cannot say I was at the show in question, I was in attendance the previous night, the first and initially only booked show for the band on that tour at Hammersmith Odeon on Sunday, 19th, February, 1978. Wow. The second show on the 20th recorded and reviewed on your show was only added later when the Sunday night sold out so quickly. So I guess if it hadn't sold out, maybe that would have been the, the recorded. Hmm. Interesting. While as a 17-year-old preparing for final exams at our equivalent here in the UK of your high school, I was allowed to attend a Sunday night event. A second on the Monday night was sadly out of the equation for me. A couple of references and pointers you might find interesting. These shows, the UK and Europe leg of the Farewell to Kings tour, were not actually the first time some of us heard Xanadu perform live. I was lucky enough to be in attendance the previous June 1977 when the band played a single night at Hammy as part of the short UK tour, their first ever shows outside North America, and an addendum to their All the World's a Stage tour whilst they were recording A Farewell to Kings at Rockfield Studios over in Wales. The very first live performance of Xanadu, months before the album was released, was at those shows. I can remember myself and friends in attendance being blown away by this epic that we heard, but it being the first time all of us had heard it, whilst we knew it was something special, it was simply too much to be fully taken in and appreciated on first hearing. Straying someone off this topic, that very first Rush show, the first of around 30 for me across their career, Saturday the 4th, June 1977 at Hammy, is very firmly etched into my memory banks, as much for the journey to and from the show than the gig itself, magnificent though that was, of course. Hammersmith is an inner city suburb of West London, around five to six miles due north as the crow flies, is the northwestern suburb of Wembley, famous for its huge stadium, and Wembley Arena, where Rush later played on multiple occasions from their Signals tour up to and including Snakes and Arrows. That afternoon, Saturday the 4th of June, 1977, Scotland had defeated England 2-1 to in what was then the annual football grudge match between the two countries in front of 100,000 mostly Scottish fans. At the end of the game, tens of thousands wildly celebrating and mostly already drunken Scotland fans descended on the London subway system at Wembley heading in all directions. They didn't know or care which, including to Hammersmith. 
I can distinctly remember the train carriages packed by a combination of rock bands traveling to the Rush concert and partying Scottish football supporters, many in kilts, who had no idea where they were heading. After the concert had ended at around 10.45 p.m. and everyone was leaving, I can still hear the roar of Scottish fans on the platform and trains at Hammersmith as a group of them were parading one of the crossbars from the goals as they were part of the massive invasion of the playing turf at Wembley at the conclusion of the game where everything, including the actual turf, was torn up for souvenirs of the great victory. That journey home that night had as many Scottish fans on the train, all oblivious to where they were heading as on the trip to the concert six hours earlier. Aside from that June 77 show being the live premiere of Xanadu, it also featured, possibly for the last time, by tour, segueing into a section of the Necromancer. Wow. Anyways, that's just some of the memories that your latest podcast edition brought to this longtime Rush fan from over the pond. Thank you so much, guys, for the continually fabulous podcast. All power to you, and keep them coming. And that's Neil. Thanks, Neil, for that email. That was, that was amazing. Just imagine being able to see Xanadu for the first time and hear it for the first time at the same time. Right, exactly. That's crazy. It must have been crazy to just sit there for like, you know, five minutes being like, is this an instrumental? What's going on with this song? Is this really happening? <laughs> there is so much dry ice in the air right now. I can't even stand it. And the other thing that jumped out at me is that in the UK, they call Hammersmith Hammy. Yeah, the Hammy. How do you like that? That's awesome. I know. I would call it the Hammy. Yeah, so would I. When we go to the hammy, Steve, we'll call it the hammy to everyone who'll listen to us talk. Yeah, we'll seem like we're cool. That's right. Seem being the appropriate (laughs) word there. (laughs) Another thing that makes us seem cool is our guest today, Jer, award-winning Canadian songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and producer. He's got two Grammy Awards and nine nominations, three Juno Awards, three Leo Awards, and also has won the Genie Award and the Gemini Award. He's best known for his work with the band FM, Canadian singer KD Lang, and of course, Rush. Ben Mink, welcome to the Rush Fancast. Thank you. Nice to be here. Really appreciate you joining us. We like to start out, Ben, by asking our guests their Rush origin story. When did you first hear Rush, and how did your relationship with the band begin? Uh, First hear them? I heard them, I think I was in my mother's kitchen in Downsview, Ontario, and I was a coffee or something and heard this voice that you can't forget uh, i think it was fly by night and i took note of it you know i said boy that's really interesting and then i forgot about it but about a week later i was up at york university in uh downsview or willowdale and i noticed their truck like they had a, a ford Conline or something with rush on the outside and i it was you know twice in a month that i noticed the band the, the first actual physical contact I ever had with the band was um, they were, I was playing with FM. We were asked to open a show at Varsity Stadium in Toronto. And um, I think it was the afternoon sound check. We all sat down for a quick dinner and stuff. And I was hanging with Alex first and then uh, met Getty. And then I think around New Year's or Christmas, there was just, just following that, there was a, a, a large party at, I think it was phase one studios or phase two. can't remember, but um, we were all hanging out there and I met Getty and started talking and realized how much we had in common uh, with family, background, music. 
and started laughing. And I, we really haven't stopped. So <laughs> that's the first I had. And then we toured with them on the moving pictures tour throughout um, parts of America and the States. And um, just became friends through that, through many years. Now, Ben, what can you tell us about growing up musically? Like when you were uh, learning your instruments, because you're self-taught, I read, right? Yeah, I'm self-taught. So how does one become so (laughs) self-taught? Well, I I think it's, I mean, you know, today, I think everybody learns on, you know, there's so much information available and online and everything. In, in the early, early days, you had to be seriously bitten by the bug. And a lot of people were. I mean, when I was a little kid, um, music played a, a huge role in my family. Uh, both my parents were excellent singers. And my dad had a wonderful um, memory for melody and was very involved in folk music from Eastern Europe and uh, you know, traditional uh, Jewish music. And um, my sister was studying violin at the Cleveland Conservatory with the concertmaster. She was five years older, so I used to go along to the lessons at the conservatory and sit on the floor while she had her lessons. So we did this for a couple of years. Though I didn't play, I was in the room. And I don't really recall working very hard to ever get a tone out of it. Something must have been picked up the same way children learn languages sitting in the kitchen. But I really wanted to play guitar. When I was a little bit older, I would take her violin out of the closet and strum it. I remember strumming to Del Shannon's Runaway, and I think it was in D minor, and it matched the open strings of the violin. And then, um, of course, uh, folk music hit, and I wanted to learn to play guitar. So we traded the violin for guitar, um, got involved in a lot of the um, early blues and folk music artists like Joe and Eddie were a favorite, and Bob Dylan, of course. and Buddy Guy, I remember going to see him in the Toronto Village when I was like 12 and a half. My friend's dad drove us out there and picked us up. And I mean, we were kids, really. But I've always had a fascination with that kind of music. It's all I ever wanted to do. Very lucky in my teens, started playing rock bands and was able to start playing very early at a lot of the clubs, including a a club in Toronto that's, that's well known called The Rock Pile. And we would open every week. Um, we were the opening band. Mary Lou Horner, which Getty said he joked about even before he met me as the band with the worst name ever <laughs> thought of. Because <laughs> there was no woman in the band. It was just you know, Mary Lou Horner with bloggers. And, um, but we opened for everybody from John Mayle to Led Zeppelin. And, you know, we were like 17, 18 years old. What an experience. It was just mind-blowing, you know. Muddy Waters, you Go to the sound checks in the afternoon, you know, back up Chuck Berry. Just an wow. incredible experience over about three and a half months. And, uh, you know, that did it, really. Then I started playing square dances, recording, just didn't look back, really. Left school. Now, how far away from Getty and Alex did you grow up, Ben? You're very close to them in age, too, right? I'm a, little, I'm a couple of years older. Yeah, we live very close. Um, I think Getty originally lived about, I would say, two miles uh, south of where I was. And, um, you know, in a neighbor like that, neighborhood like that, everybody kind of knew each other. There were a few people who left early, like Lee Oscar, the harmonica player in war, was I think the first I heard about. His brother, I think, went to school or, or high school. Yeah, so Getty lived a couple miles that way. And then he moved more north of Toronto. 
which was about, um, I guess, a 10 or 15 minute drive north. But everybody sort of knew each other. You know, there were a lot of people, a lot of comedians came from that area too, Rick Moranis and um, Howie Mandel and a number of writers now too. But uh, we were pretty close. But, you know, you, you hang with your circle at that time. And if you don't meet, you don't meet, but you hear about each other. Yeah, playing as, as like the backing band for someone like Chuck Berry must be a trial by fire, huh? Yeah, it was. We flipped coins. Who was going to back him up on a rhythm guitar? I actually technically lost the uh, thing, but I got to bring Chuck his guitar from, uh, it was in the front office and he didn't want to go out front. So I went up to the front office and I remember walking with his guitar going, this is just not real. And then handing it to him. And then he went up on stage. But yeah, there were so many surreal moments. You know, I mean, I was a huge Yardbirds fan and knew all about Led Zeppelin um, before. I mean, the, their first album had just come out. People didn't even know who they were. They had to advertise the marquee as, um, you know, Led Zeppelin featuring Jimmy Page, formerly of Yardbirds, because nobody knew who they were. Wow. That's a mouthful for a marquee, right? Yeah. You know, I still have the sticker, really. It's uh, from that you know, February 2nd, 1969. They were magic, magic times, especially for a kid, you know, and we met so many incredible people. I remember Mick Taylor coming with John Mayall and, you know, went for a walk, you know, because he didn't know where to get a pack of smokes. And we walked down the street and uh, everyone was very young and uh, just bitten by the bug of music. So and then you look back and you go, you mean I jammed harmonica with Muddy Waters in the afternoon? Wow. In the afternoon. <laughs> well, yeah, it was a band and everybody had sound check, right? So right. you would walk in through the back and everyone say hi and, you know, show each other instruments. And, um, you know, I, you know, sometimes an amplifier would break and they'd have to use the house amplifiers. I think these GBX amplifiers that were the tallest amplifiers I think you could find at the time. And you'd show people how to use it, but it was also down home and local. You know, it's um, and then you look back and you go, was I dreaming? But uh, great experiences, though. So, Ben, what, what was it like touring with Rush in those early days? They famously had a, a great kinship with the bands that opened with them. I mean, between your connection with Getty and Alex's sense of humor, it must have been just a blast. It was fantastic. It really, really was. I mean, it was we laughed so hard and um, the shows were so much fun. And there was a lot of, you know, pranking going on. Like I remember one where I think it was the last show in the tour. I used to do this, this, it was kind of like a, a musical joke between myself and whoever else would get it. We'd be playing this song in FM and I would pretend to sort of do a ventriloquist thing with a glass of water, drinking water and playing with my left hand. <laughs> and the last night of the tour, Alex replaced the water with a full glass of vodka, <laughs> which I drank. <laughs> I mean, I could barely get onto the bus after, but there were all sorts of real fun things that happened. And, um, you know, but unfortunately, our record company went bankrupt just before we started the tour. So we're out there playing songs from um, City of Fear. And nobody can buy the album. You know, they weren't good days for FM, but they were great days for camaraderie and fun. They're great guys. I mean, Russia were great people, and they still are. So much fun. So you said you toured on the Moving Pictures Tour. I believe so. Did that lead into your appearance on Signals? How did that whole thing come about, playing on Losing It? 
Yeah, I think it did. Yeah, I think um, just through that association, they they had written "Losing It" and just gave me a call saying, you know, there's there's a song that they think might work really well for violin. You know, would you would you like to play on it? And I said, sure, send me a cassette, which was the going transfer <laughs> those days. And they sent me a cassette, and I put it on, and I go, well, you know, it swings. And then I started listening to it. Well, it swings, but there's something kind of missing. Uh, every beat. And I realize it's in some absurd time signature that <laughs> it's, so fast, it's like going between, I think like, you know, seven sixteen, and uh, like it, there's, there's such a tiny sliver taken off of every second cycle. And the whole song outside of that is in, in five, four or five, eight. So there were numerous meter problems. And um, it's not that I wasn't used to playing in meters. I mean, it's a, it's a huge part of, folk music and, and I grew up with a lot of that stuff, but this was insane, you know, and you have to make music out of it. It's not just get the math right. Mm -hmm, right. But we went to Morin Heights in uh, Montreal and I went in there with my electric fiddle. And um, I think it's the first espresso machine I used too. I think I gambled <laughs> it something else too, but I'd never really, you know, this was, this was high end coffee and there was a bottle of CC as well. And I just remember coffee and CC and uh, just fiddling. And I just kept doing, you know, we did the, uh, I think the string parts and the reinforcement parts first, and then I could let loose on the solo and just did a whole bunch of tracks and, um, you know, Getty and I guess whoever was uh, engineering, maybe Paul Northfield or, or the producer, you know, cut together some stuff and played it back. And I said, sounds great. Let's keep drinking the CC, you know, it was, <laughs> you know, and you finished and that, and that's all it was. It was like one evening, but it was fun and it was heartfelt and it was a great tune, you know, a great song. Yeah. So it's amazing though, to look back and, you know, you, cause the song is about what once was and aging and to look back, I mean, that was done, you know, 1980, 81. It's mind blowing to me that that, that it's that old really. Right. It, yeah. Like, 43 years or something. I mean, you were what, 30 when you recorded that maybe? Yeah. And then, yeah. Well, not, not, no, I was about 20. I mean, I'm, I'm 70 now. So, um, do the math. I don't know. <laughs> I was going to say, don't make, don't make us do math. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's, it's fascinating to look back and, um, you know, I'm glad it holds up apparently. So now Alex famously, was so spontaneous with his solos. And it sounds to me like your solo on losing it was equally spontaneous. Did you plan that out at all? Or was it just complete feel? No, I, I just planned out, I think the opening and, you know, traditionally in those days, like solos started low and ended up high, you know, but that's, it was the, that's the, the arc of the song, it, it of the solo, it, it peaks like it's about emotional anguish and almost madness. So, I just approached it almost like a painter would be throwing paint at, at the canvas. I didn't think much about the melody or the structure or anything. You know, there's moments in there where, you know, technically it falls apart, but it's about emotion. And um, that's always much more important than executing perfectly. My brother had a great expression where he said, uh, you know, we'd listen to old blues records and they'd be out of tune and, you know, a guy'd forget the lyrics and everything. He goes, yeah, man, but he comes from the school of, you know what I mean? You know, it's like you <laughs> right. fill in. And, and that's a great human quality to, 
to remember we're, we're humans, you know, and if you can express the emotion strong enough within a song, a solo, a physical gesture, you know, then you've done the job. We talked to Jonathan Dinklage a yeah. while ago, and he told us about hearing that for the first time. He said he had just gotten an electric violin yeah. and, was, and was experimenting with it. And he, he just talked so beautifully about what that meant to him as a rock fan playing violin to hear yeah. something so unusual and so unexpected on an album. Well, that's a real compliment. It's, it's um, you know, I, I just reacted naturally to what, what I thought the song called for. And that's the way I played. I mean, the instrument itself, I, I kind of cut the instrument together because it was so hard to find five-string electric violins in those days that wouldn't feed back. And I just sort of like hacked something together. But in doing so, it, 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 there's a personal mark and a personal touch that your instrument has. I, I don't know if you're familiar with J.J. Kale and his work. He had a guitar. I mean, he was a wonderful guitar player. He played a lot like Mark Knopfler sounds a lot like him. Mm-hmm. Um, a beautiful touch, you know, a lot of gain and a lot of, you know, deep information in every finger squeak. But he had a guitar. I remember um, I was playing with somebody and we opened for him and he, he took an acoustic guitar and cut off the back and put steel bracing back there, put a pickup on it. And, it, you know, it was, a, it was a hunk of garbage, really. But in the hands of a master who knew what he wanted to say, I mean, listen to some of those records. They're, you know, like, like Cocaine or, um, you know, any of his early records. It, it's masterfully beautiful. And it's, you know, it's like Willie Nelson with his guitar in the hole. In the, I'm a real fan of like orphan guitars that are busted because you got to work harder for those things. And they all have their quirks. And once you learn them, you know, they're like children. They're like a kid who might be autistic. You know, they can't do some things, but what they can do is amazing. And you'll love them anyway. So personal expression, it goes a long, long way. While we're talking about losing it, Ben, I want to jump ahead just a little bit on Rush's final tour. Rush finally performed this amazing song live, and they asked you to perform it, I believe, in Toronto and Vancouver. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Tell us about this experience. How, how emotional was it for you to, to go on stage with the band and play that song? Well, I think more so, I, I mean, I was just sort of scared shitless, and I'll tell you why. It's not that I didn't know the song, but I found out about two days before that it was being filmed for the DVD and the whole thing. I didn't realize it was going to be chronicled that way and that put a whole different thing on it i knew people would probably hold up iphones and record it but it put a whole different thing on it you know and um i know how many things can go wrong my biggest fear was that i'd break a string and i really was just more concerned with you know is my cable gonna break am i gonna trip it's sort of the personal embarrassing things i knew the song i you know practiced it a number of times I, i had it down pretty well but you just never know. You know, you've got in-ear monitors, and if the the soundboard cuts out or somebody puts something in that's wrong, you can't hear. And people in the audience don't really understand what's going on. Like when it's when the song started, I had way too much, I think, kick drum or something. And when I'm playing the first little uh, the first section, I couldn't hear myself. And I, you know, finally motioned to the engineer. He brought it down, and it was fine. But there are so many things that can go wrong. It's like a rocket launch, you know, <laughs> if a tile falls off the spaceship, it crashes. So, right. but it went well enough. And it was by the time halfway through, 
it was just a joy to see that and realize I was up there playing it. You know, I, I could see Alex and he always makes me laugh. So we'd signal each other and uh, in the middle of signals. And, um, you know, looking at Neil, uh, it, it was uh, absolutely astounding to hear Neil in the in-ear monitors, the power and precision. And I mean, I'd heard him and I'd played with him many times, but the just the power and the confidence and the drive, just I'll never forget it ever. Just, you know, they're just they're, and they're incredible musicians. They really, really are. And natural musicians, you know. Right. And I've seen the, the video performance of you playing that. And it is it is it's pretty spectacular. <laughs> it's it's definitely a moment. Yeah, well I'm critical of it, but uh I won't <laughs> tell you where. <laughs> you know, even if you told me I don't think I would notice. <laughs> you know, we mentioned Johnny Dinklage, he played the song on a couple of the US dates. Did you get a chance to see that and how how did you think he did? I think he did great. You know, it's a different take on it. Um, it's, you know, he has a whole different uh, approach and he's got, you know, um, serious classical training and he uses a different instrument, but you know, it, the, I mean, I was fortunate enough to be the first one to do the part, create it, be there in the beginning. And, you know, at, at a certain point, you don't really own the song anymore. You know, I'm flattered that people play it like it, it develops very honored to have been the first guy to do it. And I'm still very proud of it, but uh, no, I think he did a great job. And I met Jonathan when uh, he was in Vancouver, Getty said, you know, Jonathan's here. He, he, he really loves the, um, you know, the, the original losing thing. He says, I was telling him about your fiddle. Do you think when you come down tonight, you could bring the violin? You do it. So I brought it down, you know, he took a look at it and laughed and we got a picture, but no, he seems like a great guy. Just it's the only time I ever really met him. You know, it was nice the two people shared in that experience. Yeah, he told us about playing it for the first time, and he felt like it was definitely a, a moment in his life where he, he felt like his life had come full circle. You know what I mean? Like yeah. this is the thing that he had really experienced as a young kid. He said he learned that solo in one day. He played that the entire day he heard Signals and just played it until he, could, he learned it front to back. Yeah. Well, again, he's a good learner. <laughs> <laughs> So, Ben, you left FM in 1983, correct? Uh, where did your career take you after that? Um, the first thing that happened, was the, the end of FM was not a good time in my life. I had lost a very dear friend who died suddenly, and uh, the band was not in a good place, and, and I didn't feel that I wanted to continue there, so I left that. My relationship of uh, 10 years is split up, and um, I really was not in a great place. And I had to rethink everything where I wanted to go. I started playing with a children's artist, Bob Schneider, and um, had a lot of fun in the innocence of playing children's. Nobody knew me, you know, and um, I toured around the country. I was done my shows at like 1.30 in the afternoon <laughs> <laughs> and it paid pretty well. So I did that for a while. I was playing with a country band, Prairie Oyster, who were quite big in uh, Canada and parts of the United States. Also playing with a French-Canadian group called Cano that were quite well known here. I was just doing whatever I could, sessions and picking up and then working on my own material to try to get another record going, um, which got close to being done, but not really. So I started doing film soundtracks 
Um, and then while playing with the French Canadian group Keno in Japan, we were there doing uh, Canada Week. I met Katie Lang. And um, so I was just sort of like treading around for about three years, trying to make sense of things, developing my producing chops and uh, writing and writing. And when I met KD, um, we started talking about she had a she had a cowboy shirt on with these little figurines sewn onto it. And I I was backstage and I said, hold on a second, I'm going to show you something. So she's waiting there. And I went and got my fiddle and showed her the, the inside of the fiddle has all these little farm figurines and train miniatures glued to it. And they were the same ones that were on, a lot of the same ones that she had on her shirt. And we realized we were kindred spirits in that way. (laughs) So we started talking and, uh, but that's about all. I went back home and she said she had been looking for material. I had a song I wrote when I I started writing when I was 17 for a band I was in uh, with Eddie Schwartz. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He wrote Hit Me With Your Best Shot and very fine uh, singer-songwriter who's more involved in musicians' rights right now. But um, I wrote the song, never finished it because I was too shy to sing it for the band. But I remembered when I, uh, when I saw KD that the song might suit her really well. So I sort of finished. It was, it was like a rock and roll square dance called Turn Me Round. And I finished it and sent it to her, and um, uh, she really liked it. I ended up recording it with her and started writing with her. And that's really where my association with her began. You worked on Ingenue, correct? That's a fantastic album. <laughs> I just want to say it was one of my favorite albums of the 90s, without a doubt. Yeah, we well, worked very hard on that. Man, really hard every day. And um, I'm certainly glad that one holds up, too. Very proud of that. Is that where you got really got the, the producing bug as well? working with her? I mean, I had the producing bug before. Um, I joined her, I think, when we started working on the first record on uh, Angel with a Lariat and Dave Edmonds was producing. There were times where KD and I would sort of, you know, get a lot of fast ideas and sort of took over the producing reins. I think what happened was um, our demos were starting to sound really good. You know, like on Torch and Twang, uh, we did demos for, um, I think, originally... Trail Broken Hearts, a couple other songs, and Pulling Back the Reins. And the record company really quite liked it. They said, you know what? Um, I think we're going to give you the go-ahead to go ahead and just do it on your own. We worked with Greg Penny, who was sort of the engineer and, and another person to feed off of as a, as a co-producer. But I had been producing things before. I mean, all the years with FM, you know, there's a producer involved, but uh, there's different kinds of producers. There's producers who come by it through being a musician first, and there's producers who came by it being administrative people first. And I think when you have an administrative producer, they leave it more to the band to do the arrangements. And then the engineer, who's the unspoken hero usually, like the the new Beatles, the Netflix series, which I, I haven't seen yet, but I've seen bits of it. I know there's a lot of talk about the engineer having been so important to the way those records sound. And I think that's often true. I mean, they're quiet. Their job is to be very quiet and a fly on the wall, but they make so much happen, you know? And um, I was producing, I think, since I was a kid, really, even in the bands where we were in, I'd say, hey, you know, you, you're playing too much. Can you play less of this? And I always had the tape recorder and I always put the microphone away from the drums so they wouldn't destroy the mix. You know, you're, you're doing this sort of thing. But as, and as a session player, you sit there and you watch 
engineers and musicians make mistakes. You go, if it was my record, I wouldn't do that. That's out of tune. You know, why are they putting bagpipes on there? It's destroying the vocal. You know, you some of it's opinion, but you have strong ideas about what a record should sound like. Is that more pressure on you when you're actually sitting in the seat? Not really. I think it's less pressure because if you can make the call and you've done what you want, it's agonizing to sit there and watch somebody else mess up something, especially. <laughs> no, it is. It's terrible. It was like, who, who had that song? Um, Look what they've done to my song, Ma. Melanie, I think. You know, it's. It, I think the lyrics were like, it's the only thing I could do half right and it's turning out all wrong. You know, it's like, it's true. It's not that you want to be a narcissistic power maniac, but if you have a vision, it's very important to try to see that through. Ben, your work with KD resulted in a, a litany of awards, which I read off in your introduction. What is it like to be recognized in that way, winning all those Grammys and other awards? Oh, it's it's just, I, I couldn't really make sense of it because, um, you know, my rise to that point was very slow, really. And there were a lot of, you know, good moments. And then you just sort of like something will happen at the last second. It's snatched. You go, oh, well, well, you know, I'll just keep going. And when that started happening, I just had to scratch my head. I mean, I got some diary notes of when that was going on. And I just, I'm, I was just like flabbergasted that people like it, that it was being recognized. Because I knew really that album could have been completely panned. And it was when we first came out. There's a lot of bad press it got, bad reviews. And I knew that we were taking a chance. So, I figured it's either going to be my last move in my career or something good will happen from it. But I'm amazed that it's held up, that a lot of people are still um, enjoying it. You know, um, my, my daughters tell me their friends sometimes listen to it. And, um, you know, it's the highest compliment a, a creator can possibly have. Uh, it's so gratifying, it really is. But it was, it was hard work. I mean, there's no getting around it. I guess most worthwhile things are. But, um, you know, we beat ourselves up getting that. It wasn't easy, and it and it was not well received right away. We thought we'd made huge mistakes, and then it just turned. Consecrating was released as a single in the states first, and didn't do much of anything. And then it came out in England, and start or, or the other way around. It came out in England first. Anyway, it had a second life and just picked up. I don't know. I just scratched my head and uh, just said thank you what else are you going to do right it was mind-blowing i had read too that um while you were working on demos for some of the songs you had asked getty to play some placekeeping bass on some of those definitely yeah yeah i think he played on pulling back the reins and uh, a song called didn't i and he came over and um and then we went to the baseball game <laughs> nice <laughs> So, you know, the, the first thing, I'm going to get tons of emails if I don't ask this question. Are there versions of those songs with him playing bass on them? Yeah, I got them somewhere. Yeah. I, do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you should admit that, though, because the people are going to be asking you about them now. Yeah, true. Um, <laughs> I, I'm going through all my old stuff. Like, I'm kind of weeding out a lot of stuff. I'm selling a lot of the instruments I don't use anymore. And I'm going through tons of uh, memorabilia and stuff so um i don't know i mean I, you know I, I don't release any of that without uh 
good reason. And, and I'm not the only one involved. You can't do that. But um, <laughs> it was just all fun. You know, I mean, I know right. Eddie's reputation, shall we say, precedes him. But he, he's a pal, you know, and he came over just out of the, the, his own kindness. I think we, we actually were putting together an Ikea couch for myself uh, in my new <laughs> And then, then the bass was there, and I said, hey, you know, can you try playing bass on this? It, it's that casual. So, Ben, your friendship with Getty led to you collaborating with him on his first solo album, My Favorite Headache. Can you tell us the genesis of that? I think, you know, you probably know what preceded, you know, Neil's first loss um, of his daughter and, and not long after his wife. It was just devastating for the whole community and um and especially tough on the guys in the band and i think um you know they didn't know where they'd go they didn't know if they'd ever play together as a band nobody knew but getty and i started we never really jammed much at all i remember one day at my place he just picked up a guitar and we we realized how similarly we play i mean i don't play bass but our approach, you know, just jamming was very, very natural. We just looked at each other surprised that, you know, we'd never really done that before, even having known each other for, you know, a good 10 or 15 years before. We'd never really jammed like that before. So we thought there was something there and we just picked up on it. You know, I had um, my second daughter was just born and I wasn't doing too much and he was in the middle. So we just figured, let's just try a couple of tunes and see how that feels. And it, Happened pretty organically, but um, I think, you know, you'd have to ask Getty, but I think he needed something to to do at the time that would, you know, take his mind off of all the, uh, the grief going on. And, um, I mean, we just listened to the record for the remastering, the vinyl remastering for it. And I hadn't heard in 20 years, but I, I was, like, amazed how, how good some of the stuff sounded. I don't even remember doing it. Like, listen to the parts going like, well, were we crazy? But it sounds really cool. Yeah, well, we just listened to, we just, uh, a few episodes ago, we talked about My Favorite Headache, and we also think it's it's a fantastic sounding album. Never mind the, the quality of the songs, just yeah. the sound of it. And this is before, this is not the remastered version. Yeah. Um, this is the, the original version. You got some great tones on, especially some of the guitar work. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? I don't know. We had an excellent engineer for, for you know, we had Adam Casper who worked with, uh, you know, the whole um, grunge scene in, in Seattle. I mean, and we had David Leonard as well, who's got a wonderful history in, in, in a, a strong organic kind of rootsy sound. We, I think we're mostly preoccupied with the writing and the, and the, the parts themselves I'd pick up whatever guitar was sort of available on Getty's wall and, and gravitated to a, um, I, what was it? It was a Gibson of some sort, just a, a red Les Paul, I think, of some sort. I think there was a, a Stratocaster as well. There's 335, which I really liked. Just whatever's there, you just, you know, find, if it's not bright enough, go to the treble pickup, you know, just, just make it work. And, um, but we used plugins in those days because it was it was earlier. There were a lot of uh, rather than an amp, it was easier to to deal with, and you could change the sound afterwards. When it came time to actually getting the guitar tones, I remember being in uh, in the studio in in um, Seattle, and we had the actual 
Marshall plexiglass amp that we had previously used as a model and we A-B'd it. We did the same thing with drums and tape versus hard drive because we had, and it was, it was a great experiment to actually have the microphones there, the real thing, and the simulated model. And in a lot of cases, we just went with the simulated model. We liked it better. And it would, it was questionable whether anybody on earth could tell the difference. And it's a lot easier to, to dial up. So, you know, I'm a real believer it's in the fingers. Like it's, it's mostly in the hands, you know, iconic performances. You know, you're going to argue with the intensity and the, and the intent and purity of, of Robert Johnson's recordings in a hotel room. Who gives a fuck? <laughs> it's a great piece of art and work. If they used another microphone, it'd make no difference. Mm. You know? Well, that goes back to what you were saying before, just about the, the emotion and the connection to whatever you were doing at the time. Well, that wins. You know? It, it, it wins every time. You know, the thing that stood out to us was not Getty's bass playing, surprisingly. It was the songwriting. The songwriting on this record is just incredible. Well... Thanks. I mean, he, he, you know, he did the lyrics. I think that it's very important usually when working with a singer like that, that they have to express what's truly in their heart when they're, when they're doing the lyrics. And, you know, they usually you, I, I get lyrics bounced off of me and I go, yeah, that's cool. Or, or I may contribute a couple of things, but it's his statement really lyrically, but the songs, I mean, some really ring true for me. I really think my favorite headache is a, is a really well executed song. I like um, um, what's the song with the train in it? Runaway train. Runaway train. Yeah. <laughs> I really like that one. Um, I liked how it came down. We've been making jokes about you know we, we were sitting and wondering whether we should write a new song, and uh, we didn't know if we had enough time to start something. And I, you know I think we casually mentioned that. It just takes a good six minutes, like if you're lucky, as long as the, from the time the song starts to the time the song finishes, you could have a great six minutes and actually finish a perfect song. And we got close with that one. You know, it was pretty much, we just edited a bit and it was just sort of all there. And then we went and had dinner. But, uh, you know, it, it was interesting to listen to it after that length of time. I don't normally go back and listen to my records. Once I'm done, I'm really pretty sick of it. <laughs> uh, one song in particular grace to grace it's kind of the the shared history that you and getty have a shared family history yeah in that song right yeah can you tell us a little bit about the creation of that song well i think the shared history you're talking about is just the holocaust uh yeah both kids of holocaust survivors which is a unique history and um i think you know it it propels a lot of how we operate as people. Um, I think we have a strong sense of social justice and humanitarian, um, uh, what's the word? Just, just a sense of fairness, I suppose. But I think it informs most of what I do, um, not in a religious way, not in a thing, just in, in a terms of what is right. And music for me was always in the house. I mean, my parents sang a lot and my, you know, grandfather was a Hasidic cantor. Um, it's very much in the blood. It's interesting now because I've got nephews and who are 
very serious musicians and it, you know, it's kind of runs in, in the family as far as, you know, it's a great place to draw pain from and um, you turn it into something else. Right. There's also seems to be a sense of joy in, in being alive, right. That comes across. Absolutely. It's a, a huge shout out to that. It really is because we know, you know, very little chance we really should have been here altogether. Mm. I mean, uh, most of my relatives were lost. So, so um, you know, when you grow up with a very hollow and the idea of your existing is, is one thing and everybody else has, you know, grandparents and uh, a lot of relatives around and uh, not so in, in my family or a lot of people who have my background. And there's a suspicion of happiness because it can be snatched, snatched at any minute. So, um, but you, it, it's also a reason to celebrate everything, every day. You know, uh, Ben, Getty mentioned how freeing it was to craft the lyrics and the music of this album at the same time, rather than taking someone else's lyrics like he did with Neil and Rush mm -hmm. and write the song around those. Can you explain how much easier it is to work with your own lyrics? versus someone else's in that way? Um, I can't really, because I, I don't consider myself a lyricist. Um, I mean, I've worked with, with KD um, and, you know, a lot of different songwriters, Ann Wilson and, and uh, Hart, many wonderful singer-songwriters. And I do contribute from time to time, like chorus lines I'm pretty good at and hooks. I think that if you're in a band and they're going to give you hassles about the lyrics you're writing, to be free to say anything you want is um, it's liberating. You don't have to justify to anybody except yourself. You know, it's like moving out of the house. Nobody's going to tell you what to do, so. but it's scary. So. Right. You know, as Jerry mentioned, we were talking about this album on a few podcasts ago and the song home on the strange came up Ben. yeah. And we didn't know who this song was about and we read interviews yeah. with Getty and he wasn't giving up who the song was about. So we wanted to ask you, do you know who this song is about? Yeah, I know who the song's about, but uh, <laughs> are you going to tell us? I don't want to. Well, Getty doesn't want to. Well, I don't want to because it's going to do it's, it's uh, let's just say it was someone we were working with. It was a really nice guy, but eccentric, you know, and it, it was right. kind of like, from there, I don't want to. I don't want to give his name. I think might feel uncomfortable or something. But <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it was very cartoon-like, and uh, <laughs> and some of the lines were some of the things that that person actually said. So, uh, <laughs> well, like, if we can find out who sleeps with a chainsaw. I guess we'll we'll figure out who it is. He really did. <laughs> <laughs> he used to go for three smoke walks. You know? <laughs> oh man. And after you recorded the album, was there any thought at all about touring behind it? Yeah, there was. Um, I don't think we got onto it because I think it were, there was already talk of Rush performing again. And um, so that fell by the wayside. And then I got busy with, um, I don't know, something else, my kids or KD, or I think I was working with Naked Ladies or something. But um, it would have been nice. And who knows? Maybe in the future. Yeah, you never know. It would definitely be fun. 
Now, in 2007, Ben, you made another contribution to the Rush landscape. You contributed strings to the song Faithless. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us how this came about? Uh, Getty called me. He says, <laughs> we, got, we got a song that uh, we've done some fake strings on from the just synthetic strings. Do you want to put some strings on it? And he sent me the song, and I said, sure. And I took my, this time you could take a laptop, right? And uh, I went up to, I think I was at Whistler and north of Vancouver in the mountains there. And my family was skiing and I stayed downstairs in the basement and laid down a bunch of strings, um, sent them back and um, they used them. No big deal. I mean, but the, you know, the, the, the difference is that you send the parts, you're not in a room collectively mm-hmm. going, you know, hurrah. Um, you know, it, I think it's something in that Beatles documentary that it really not that I was never aware of it and don't think about it every day, but the idea of the collective group doing something together, unanimously saying, yeah, that was great, guys, right? That was great. Let's go get a beer. And, and it was. And you all work towards it in, you know, in, in contrast to sending files, getting um, approval from several different people, you know, remastering for six weeks getting approval from, I mean, hiring people for beats alone. It's something I, I understand. I know what is involved and how the process, but man, I can't help but think, you know, you get a bunch of guys in a room, learn to play, write a song and all on the same moment, like a football team, score a touchdown and cheer, you know, don't call in that pass. Don't call in the catch. Don't call in the touchdown. It's really um, sad that thing. Not to say that people don't play wonderfully now as groups. Tons and tons of people do. It's incredible musicians out there now. Uh, getting noticed is another problem. But um, I really miss playing with people in one collective, and the camaraderie and the tribal nature of it. Truly, truly miss it. Sort of like a, an us versus them kind of thing, right? We're doing this thing and. We're trying to get this thing done, you know, absent from any kind of influence on the outside. It's a different thing. It's like, you know, can you date entirely on screen? I mean, you know, that's a virtual relationship. And I think music has become a lot of that, you know, to be in a room with someone and you're sweating together and you're, you're really, there's a whole different interaction. You're, we're humans. We're meant to sit in front of a fire and, and look at each other you know, smell each other, hear each other, punch each other out, all those things. That's what makes relationships. And music is simply a symbol of all that. It's an emotional capture of all that stuff. And um, not to say you can't make great music other ways, but I truly miss that, that idea of everybody together, learn your parts, create something, and um, make a document, and it stays. Don't remix it. Don't send it out to 17 people to do dance mixes. You know, that's fine if you want to do that. But the first one has to stand as the expression of what your original idea was. Do you think that affects performances, Ben? I mean, do you think your performance on Faithless, for instance, would have been better if you were in the room with the guys versus sending them? Not necessarily. I I think Faithless Faithless was, uh, you know, it's more of an orchestral thing. There's... um, not so much of the personal fingerprint on it. You know, it's a very different thing to 
to play a solo with finger grease right in your face, as opposed to, um, you know, a background uh, emotional build, like more of a Hollywood type um, thing. They're, they're both perfectly legitimate, but they're different expressions. One's like a choir, you know, and one is like Pavarotti. So Pavarotti has a lot more to say personally, you know, but layering, because there's a lot of layering involved. And it, it, well, I guess it's more supportive is what it is. It's, uh, it's, it's more dramatically supportive, full strings. So it's a different, very different thing. You know, maybe if I was playing with an orchestra and we were doing it there, it would be a very different experience, you know? And I guess when you're playing with a bunch of actual people in an actual room, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a sense of, you know, are you picking up what I'm putting down type of, type of attitude in the room, right? Where you can build off of one another. That's is that what you're saying is kind of missing sometimes? Yeah, but it's also the you know it's the emotional experience. Look, look at everybody working at home now. You know, I'm not saying that they love we're going to an office and fighting traffic every day, but there's still something about interacting with people. Somebody makes a joke that in, interfaces into the whole experience. That that's what you remember. I had a great yeah. fucking time. We had beer. The lights were great. You know, at home. You're, you're layering parts. You're talking to yourself. There's a time for that, for sure. Um, I really like a combination of both because you get to think differently and quietly and really reflect on your own. But then it's time to bring it to the, bring it to the band, play with the band. It's, it's fun. And I think that's what I miss more than anything. I can only have so much fun with myself. Um, <laughs> You know, Ben, I think Rush fans would love it if Getty were to do another solo album. Number one, do you think Getty will do another solo album? And if so, would you like to be part of it? Well, of course. I'll, I'll listen, I, I love hanging with Getty. And, um, you know, he's, he's a dear friend and we laugh an awful lot. And um, I don't know what his plans are. You know, he's working on his memoirs now mm-hmm. and um, I'm sure he's going to do a great job on that as, as he did with the base book and everything's a very talented guy. So um, yeah, who knows? You know, I don't know where the world's going if we get COVID under control but to some extent, then uh, it'll be a very different planet. We can only hope so, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's going to take some time. You know? So what are you working on now, Ben? Uh, where can Rush fans hear your latest work? Not too much I'm working on, really. I'm, I'm writing all the time on my own. I'm on um, the Vancouver Symphony School Board, which is there. There's, uh, and I'm on the Vancouver Symphony Board. In, in um, my role, really, I'd like to believe is just to sort of integrate some interesting ideas towards the symphony. And there's a school that's a very cool school they have. They teach jazz and ethnic music and um, all sorts of things that um, have wonderful online and in-person classes. There's a lot of um, a lot of things that are offered there that are really wonderful. Um, so I'm spending a lot of time on on that sort of stuff. And um, recently moved, so I'm putting up shelves. <laughs> a lot of that. Getty coming over to help you with the IKEA. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I just saw him in Toronto. I was over in Toronto visiting some people and um, we had some fun times there. Um, he has been here, but um, you know, nobody's traveling much these days. So. 
Well, I know we speak for all Rush fans, Ben, by thanking you for all your contributions to the Rush universe. And thank you so much for joining us today on the Rush Fancast. We appreciate it. Oh, my, my pleasure. No, really my pleasure. I hope there's more in the future too. So, Jared, that was the best piece of pecan pie I ever had. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't it? Yeah, what a great guy. Amazing, amazing. Yeah, it's just so great to hear, you know, all the stories of people who have just been in the music business for a long time and love what they do. You can tell. I, I totally agree with them too about, you know, the old crappy instrument that someone can play very well. Because as he was talking about that, I was thinking about uh, Willie Nelson's guitar. Yeah. And what an absolute piece of crap it looks like, you know? It's yeah. held together. It's held together by a, a wish not to fall apart for the most part. But, you know, who could who could imagine Willie Nelson playing anything but that? Or the bass that Getty bought for $200 right. that he used on Tom Sawyer. I mean, <laughs> come on. Right? It doesn't matter. I mean, that should be an, uh, an inspiration, I think, to young musicians everywhere who think they need this instrument or this great instrument. You know, you can learn on just about anything and you can make anything your own. You don't need anything, really. Just a, no. Just a will to create great music right yeah obviously and coming from a guy who's has been doing it his whole life it's it's uh inspiration yeah really inspiring i mean all those awards i read off at the beginning i mean this guy has done everything there is to do right. in music i know and he's still doing it yeah absolutely you can find us on twitter we are at rush fancast instagram we are at the rush cast email jerry let him know what you thought of our conversation with ben mink at therushcast at gmail.com. The bass intro and outro, that is Lex. And Jar, I hope you have a great, great quote to wrap this up. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you know what I'm going to quote from. Okay. Some are born to move the world, to live their fantasies, but most of us just dream about the things we'd like to be. Sadder still, to watch die, than never to have known it. For you, the blind who once could see, the bell tolls for thee. Bell tolls for thee. Very moving song. Yep. Great way to end it. Thanks, Jar. See you later. <laughs>